So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, working our way through this ancient book of wisdom. And today, in particular, the passage is all around wisdom and what wisdom is and what it means and how to use it and how it works. Just a brief passage at the end of chapter 9 in verse 13 of Ecclesiastes. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a poor, a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. It's an intriguing little story, isn't it? Not one that I'd really known much about before and and certainly hadn't heard preached on, just an obscure little story tucked away here in the middle of Ecclesiastes. But as you start looking at it and start connecting with it, it's got a lot to offer. Uh, that basically the scenario is, and this seem, it seems to be a story that this guy who's writing Ecclesiastes, who we're calling the quester, seems like this is something that he has seen and, and observed with his own eyes. And the story revolves around this poor, wise man uh, who lives in a small city, and the small city is attacked by a huge, powerful army, a powerful king with his army. So the king comes with all of his forces and all of his military and he comes to attack the city, and the strategy that he uses is to build these huge siege ramps. Uh, this was a, a classic strategy in ancient military tactics. You'd just build a ramp up and over the city walls. This was the way you got in, because the city walls were the main line of defense for a city, huge, big things, and so they would build these ramps, sometimes taking a long time to get them just right, but that would enable your troops to scale the wall up and over, and once you're in, that's half the battle. Then you've got the upper hand. So the way the scenario is set up, it really is a huge, powerful army against a tiny little city. It's a David and Goliath scenario, much like tonight, you know. It's, uh, it, should, it should be a walkover, you know. That's the way it's set up. But, and this is where there's no analogy to the rugby at all, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, there, is a, there is a man living in this city, a poor, wise man, and he saves the city by his wisdom. Uh, we're not told how. We don't know how he particularly saves the city. Maybe he negotiates with the king. Maybe there's some exchange or some deal that's made. But one way or another, the point is that it is his wisdom that prevents the the attack from happening. And the army backs off or he saves the city. And so this poor wise man saves a small city. Uh, Then the final scene in this story is the twist and it's the sad ending, uh, whereby even though this man has done an heroic act, he's not remembered. And his wisdom counts for nothing because he doesn't get the big ticker tape parade. He doesn't get the statue uh, made of him. He's just ignored. He's forgotten. And soon after he's done this amazing act, he's, uh, his memory is gone. His words are ignored. And it even says that his wisdom is despised. So in the end, wisdom kind of doesn't seem to amount to much at all. Uh, on the surface of it, the quester here is making a couple of points about wisdom, and he's using this analogy to talk about what wisdom is, and he's showing that it's an incredibly valuable thing. It's a precious commodity, uh, more valuable than the weapons of war, more valuable than military and political might. But at the same time, it's this tragic thing. 
where it's, it often goes unnoticed and unheeded and it is ignored and it is despised. And so ultimately, this is he lands back again on this conclusion that life is meaningless and wisdom is meaningless because valuable as it might be, it never really seems to get anywhere. Now, that in itself is good and well. And you could leave the story there and that'd be a nice, tidy little sermon and we could all go home. And some of you would like to. But I think there's more going on here than meets the eye. And it's interesting, when, when you look at the way this passage has been interpreted, some early Jewish interpreters of this passage believe that beyond just the literal scenario here and the historical event of what happened, there's a deeper meaning. And that maybe in some way, these events and this poor wise man and this whole scene, maybe this story points to something beyond itself, deeper than itself. Maybe it's kind of like a parable. Maybe it's sort of like an allegory of something else. And I think they might have been onto something. And as I've looked at this story, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that maybe in some ways this story is a subtle picture of Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that the quester is writing overtly about Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. He's writing about a story that he knows of a, of a man and a king and an army and so on. But in the fullness of the unfolding of the biblical story, there are some parallels here that I think we can see. And maybe in a way the quester himself didn't even know there are some connections here between this poor wise man and what Jesus has done through his life and his death and his resurrection. And as I've looked at it in that light, the more that I've looked at that and the more that I've looked at that scenario, the more that the different things about this story just seem to fit and they just seem to come together. So I want to look at it from that angle, and entertain the possibility that what we might be seeing here in Ecclesiastes 9 is a subtle foreshadowing of the life and ministry of Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as being both poor and wise. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, talks about Jesus being poor, not in terms of his social standing, not, not in terms of being financially poor, but he says, although Jesus was rich, although he was rich, he became poor for our sakes in order that through his poverty, we might become rich. And what he's describing is the way in which Jesus has left the privilege and the status and the rank of heaven in order to enter into the poverty of our humanity, enter into the, the fullness and the sharing in, in, our, in our humanness, in our human weakness and in our human brokenness. That's the sense in which Jesus was poor. But Philippians 2 describes it as an emptying himself the self-emptying, self-giving event where he lowered himself, this condescending act where Jesus took on humanity, didn't take his position of equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, didn't exploit it, but humbled himself and entered into our poverty and our weakness. That's the sense in which Jesus was poor for our sake. And Jesus was not only poor, he was also wise. And when you think about the wisdom of Jesus, don't just think about him being a wise man, like someone who knows a lot of stuff, or someone that just knew the way to go and always knew what to do. There's more to it than that with Jesus. Colossians 2.3 talks about Jesus as embodying the fullness of all wisdom and all knowledge. In him, the fullness of wisdom and knowledge dwell, which means Jesus is not just wise, he's not just a wise man. He is the personification of wisdom. 
He is wisdom with skin on. He's wisdom walking around the dusty roads of Palestine. That's who he is. You remember in, in Proverbs, some of you may be familiar, in Proverbs, wisdom is personified. Wisdom is described as a woman, the woman, lady wisdom, and she speaks, and she cries out, and she calls, and she warns, and she, she utters these things in the public square. And I think part of the reason that happens in the Old Testament is because you come to the New Testament and Jesus picks up that imagery and he is the ultimate personification of wisdom. He is wisdom embodied, the fullness of all the wisdom of God, the world's wisdom, it all comes together. The fullness of divine wisdom and human wisdom, the best of it all, comes together in the person of Jesus. Which means really Jesus has to be our starting point for thinking and talking about true wisdom. There's all kinds of varieties of wisdom out there, but at the heart of true biblical wisdom, you've got to start with Jesus because he embodies it. When you see Jesus, you're seeing what wisdom looks like, walking around, talking, and doing stuff. So in Proverbs, where you have these statements, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think we need to interpret those now in a Jesus way, in a Jesus-centered way. So maybe when you come to those statements in Proverbs, now with the fullness of the Scriptures in our, in our hands, what we see them saying is the fear of the Lord as revealed in Jesus is the beginning of wisdom. Because Jesus is the full revelation of what wisdom is. He is the Lord and He is the beginning, the starting point for thinking about wisdom. So Jesus is this poor, wise man. He sort of fits that role within the story of Ecclesiastes. And so roll the story forward a bit. What happens in this story? The poor, wise man in the small city, he defends the city by his wisdom against a powerful king who comes and attacks. Now again, there are some connections there that aren't too hard to, 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 to grasp. Jesus too saves us from a powerful enemy, doesn't he? Saves us from a powerful king who comes against God and his work and his people the enemy of God. He's called Satan, the accuser, the tempter, the evil one, variety of names. He is the personification of evil. Jesus personifies wisdom. Satan personifies evil. And we could take the city maybe as a metaphor for humanity or the world. That's not an unknown metaphor in the ancient world. And so Jesus, this poor wise man, saves the city of humanity, of this, this God's world from the powerful king, the evil one who comes against it with the fullness of his army. And that takes us then to the, the central event, the climax of Jesus' ministry, where this centrally happens, the cross. And it's no coincidence that when you get to the cross, one of the ways in which it's described in the New Testament is wisdom. That the cross is the demonstration of the supreme wisdom of God. Isn't that interesting? Given that the poor man saves the city by his wisdom, and in the New Testament we have the cross as the ultimate demonstration of God's wisdom through which he saves his people. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 22. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
There it is. If you want to see the heart of wisdom demonstrated, it is on the cross. The ultimate demonstration of what authentic wisdom looks like. And this is the beauty of it because you see there in the the Ecclesiastes story, we don't know how the poor man saves the city. We don't know what his wisdom looked like, but on the cross we do. We know what it looked like because we see it and we have it described so well in the Gospels. And what you see is that the cross is not the wisdom of military might. It's not matching might with might. Even though Jesus faced the full fury of the empire, of the Roman government, it's not the wisdom of political action, even though, again, he was on the receiving end of all that. It's not the wisdom of of coercion, of lobbying, of persuasion, and of eloquence, even though that's what all the Jewish leaders loaded up to try and get him crucified. Even though that's what he was facing, that's not the type of wisdom he displayed. The wisdom of the cross is this humble wisdom. The wisdom of the cross is this quiet, submissive, surrendered wisdom. The wisdom of the cross is this self-giving love. Not self-seeking, not self-serving. It is self-giving. It is self-lowering. It is self-emptying. It is a wisdom that sacrifices in humble service for others. That's the wisdom of the cross. And that type of wisdom is so utterly counterintuitive. Paul says it's foolishness to the Greek worldview. The Greek worldview built as it was on self-aggrandizement, and prowess, military strength, intellectual rigor. All of that makes a crucified man utterly foolishness. And it's foolish to the Jewish worldview. They're looking for great signs and demonstrations of God's power, like the Exodus, like all the great things that God did in the Old Testament. That's what they're expecting. They want the signs and wonders type of wisdom, and Jesus doesn't deliver that. He could have, but he doesn't. He delivers this rare and precious wisdom of self-giving love. And in our own culture, 21st century Western individualism, that type of wisdom of the cross is just as despised. It looks just as bizarre. And it's written off just as quickly. Because our culture is about self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. Even in our Kiwi culture, we've got ways of doing this, haven't we? It might be more passive-aggressive in Kiwi culture. It might not be quite so much to your face, but we know how to muscle past each other. We know how to get our name on the project. We know how to schmooze the boss or the client or do whatever we need to do to get ahead. It's about shouting louder. It's about putting ourselves forward, getting ourselves up there, getting our opinions and our interests forward. It's about pushing ourselves forward. This wisdom of the cross is so rare. It's so unbelievably rare. And even in Christian circles, it's incredibly rare. I was at a meeting the other day, a few Christian leaders, and there was a guy there at the meeting, a nice guy, and he's involved in a lot of great projects, really well-connected guy in Christian circles. But I just got the feeling as I was sitting in this meeting with him, it's like he had this air of superiority about him. You know, he's dropping the names of people that he's met and that he's connected to. Sometimes not even so much in what he said. You know, it's just the way that it's said sometimes. There's just this, you know what it is, it's a vibe that 
Everyone else is a bit beneath him. He's just got a few more important things to focus on. And halfway through the meeting, he took off. Had other things to do. You just kind of get this impression, oh, he's, he's off, to the, off, off to better thing. Kind of leaves us, well, you know, just, we're, just the hum- we're just humble people doing, doing what we can do. But, you know, he's involved in great projects and he's doing good things. But you see people like that and you just have to ask yourself, where's the wisdom of the cross here? Where is this genuine biblical self-giving, self-lowering kind of wisdom? Even those of us that follow Jesus, we just seem so slow to get it, so slow to practice. And I put myself in that category. I'm no good at it either. But this seems to be the heart of it. This seems to be when the Bible comes to describe wisdom, it is in these terms. It is not self-promoting, it is self-giving. It is a humble quality. That's why Ecclesiastes 9, the quester says, the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Quiet words of the wise. I don't think that means you have to be an introvert to be wise. It doesn't mean you literally always have to be quiet, but it means that wisdom is about not always putting ourselves forward, our opinions and our voices, but listening well and being highly tuned to the interests of the other. Sometimes I've been in a meeting situation and the person running that meeting has done a really wise thing. You might have had this experience. You know, sometimes in meetings, whatever the meeting's about, they can often be dominated by one or two voices because you get the loud people and they're not necessarily bad people, but you know, there's, there's usually one, two or three people that are a bit more dominant and the discussion goes back and forwards and there's a few people that really feature pretty heavily. And you kind of get to the end of the discussion and it wraps up and you feel like what you've heard from these one, two, three people is the sum total of views. That kind of, you feel like that represents the whole issue and that represents what the room's thinking. But sometimes I've seen a wise person running the meeting who will, as that discussion begins to fade, they'll eyeball one or two of the people in the room that haven't said much and say to them, so what do you think? And sometimes, not always, but sometimes when those people start to speak, it's some of the best stuff in the entire discussion. And sometimes it makes... The rest of the discussion just seemed like a bit of clatter because there's a precious gem here. And they're not the type of people to put themselves forward, to muscle their way. They're not going to butt in. They're not going to interrupt other people. They're not going to speak over. And if they'd never been asked, chances are they would have said nothing and that gem would have never been discovered. But there's wisdom on both ends there, isn't there? It's the quiet wisdom of someone who's secure enough in themselves not to have to push their way into the conversation. And there's incredible wisdom in the facilitator drawing out some of those voices and not associating wisdom with volume because that's what we tend to do. The one who speaks the loudest must be the wisest. That's why if I've got a weak point when I'm preaching, I just speak louder. (laughs) Hope that you'll get it. Hope that you'll like it. You know, this is what we tend to do. But I think this posture of self-giving love enables us to be those kinds of people. doesn't mean you... You're suddenly saying nothing in meetings. You've got to be who you are. But, but you know what I'm trying to say. It's that humble wisdom. It's that quiet wisdom. It's that wisdom that you have to confront a bit of your own brokenness. Because we've got such pressure and we put it on ourselves. We, we just feel this pressure to be impressive to others, don't we? In all kinds of arenas, at work, 
at home, socially, we feel the pressure to be impressive. I feel that pressure. I'm feeling that right now, to be impressive. But you know what I mean. I want you to think I'm some great preacher. You know, preachers have this hard time because we're trying to, we're dealing with these texts, trying to bring new and fresh insights out of a text that's been around for over 2,000 years. You know, that's a tough gig. But we want to be liked. We want to be seen as impressive. And we put this pressure on ourselves. Friends, we've got to try and find our identity in the cross of Jesus and center ourselves there. That's who you are. That's where your value comes from. God's showing you exactly who you are on the cross. He's showing you exactly how much you're worth in His preparedness to enter into poverty on many levels to rescue and redeem you. That's where your identity comes from. And as you can discover your brokenness and yet this new life that you have in Jesus, we start to develop a secure self that can truly be wise. You can't really be wise if you don't know who you are. You can't really be wise if you're just pandering to other people's expectations because then we overcompensate and we try to be impressive and we need to be heard. We don't need to be heard. We're validated by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that's enough, right? So we've got to know who we are in Jesus, have a strong sense of self, not our own stuff, but our worth in Jesus. You've got to have a self to give to someone or else you've got nothing to offer them. Not this kind of reflected sense of self that we get from everyone else where our value depends on what you all think, what others think. We've got to know who we are in Jesus. And I think out of that comes the ability to, to, to learn the craft of wisdom over time. And some of those beautiful traits that we'd all love dearly of just being able to see the issues. You know how when you're around people who have real wisdom, they can just see the issue? And you're all talking about something over here and you think it's this. And then someone just says something and you realize, man, we're totally on the wrong page with this. They've just seen it. I don't think that comes out of self-preoccupation comes out of sensitivity to others, comes out of a deep grounding in Jesus. It's the self-giving wisdom of the cross. It's that wisdom that can sift through complexity and see simplicity in the middle of it. That wisdom that reads people well, reads the patterns of life well, discerns those people with discretion, those people that bring experience. And wisdom, you know, it's not fast food, is it? much as I love Wendy's, wisdom's not like Wendy's. It is not fast. It's not drive-through stuff, you know. Wisdom is long-term, and I'm an infant in this. You know, I just feel like I'm just beginning to try and grasp hold of some of this, because it does take time, despite your best efforts and the greatest posture of humility. It just takes time. It's a crockpot commodity. You've got to give it time. But it starts from that centering in Jesus, and that willingness to be humble. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. I heard the story a while back of a guy who was fired from his job. His boss sat him down and explained to him the reasons why he was going to have to let him go. They were doing some restructuring or whatever it was. Talked it through and he said, look, I'm sorry, your job's just no longer tenable. And they talked through the reasons for this and they had a, had a full discussion on it. And toward the end of the conversation, the guy who was being fired, the employee, said to his boss, look, I imagine that it must be quite hard having to sit down with someone and tell them that they're fired. I imagine that's not an easy conversation to have. And so I was just wondering, how are you doing? How are you in all of this? 
And what's this process like on you? Those kinds of comments just stop people in the tracks. That's the foolishness of the cross right there. It's the scandal of wisdom that a fired employee would dare to ask about the humanity of the person who's just let him go. That's why it's so precious and that's why it's so rare because it's just hard to do. Sounds great, sounds lofty. It's really, really hard. But boy, when you see it, it's just a beautiful thing. The sad twist to the story, of course, is that last scene. If you come back to this little parable of the poor wise man and we're saying that perhaps this is reflective of Jesus and he saved us through the self-giving wisdom and then given us a pattern and a model to follow. But look at what happens to the poor man in the end. It's not a happy story. Big surprise with Ecclesiastes, right? It doesn't have a happy ending. But the poor wise man, what happens to him? His wisdom's ignored. His words are forgotten and his wisdom's despised. But again, isn't there a parallel? Isn't this exactly what so many do with the wisdom of Jesus? Supremely demonstrated on the cross, puts to shame wisdom and authority and power of the world, and yet it's ignored and it's despised and it's written off. And honestly, so will we be as we seek to walk in this way of wisdom. Because if you are content not having to be the loudest, and if you don't always muscle yourself forward and push your way in and promote your, your opinion at the expense of others, many times you will be ignored. That's just the reality. There's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow here that says, hey, everyone's going to come around to my way of thinking because I'm the truly wise one. This is the tragedy of wisdom in the world as we know it, is that so often it is ignored and others will trample over you. They'll see you as weak and they'll, they'll steamroll right over you. And sometimes you'll feel that injustice because you're not pushing your way in, but you're seeing others get credit and be moved forward and be seen as more impressive. And you feel like, man, I'm suffering here because I'm trying to exercise genuine, humble wisdom. And you know what Paul would call that? Dying with Jesus. Sharing in the death of the Messiah. It's how he describes it. Welcome to the way of the cross. Welcome to the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. This is the way of Jesus, friends. This is the way of Jesus in postmodern 21st century Western culture. It's not always pretty and it's never easy. But it's sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. And it's knowing, friends, that in that moment, in that moment of weakness, in that moment of humiliation sometimes, you are closest to participating in the suffering of the Messiah. You're closest to that pattern. And you're closest to the heart of the Father. And the presence of Jesus is with you like never before. And somehow in the midst of that dying, being prepared to die, to others' expectations, to others' opinions, and just to be yourself in a humble way, in the midst of that dying, there is a rising, isn't there? There is resurrection to new life, but it's a new kind of life that doesn't seek the validation of other people that doesn't let my identity be determined by others, but can be humble enough, because I choose to be humble. I'm not saying this for me, by the way, as if I'm some great star of it. I'm just saying in general as Christians, it's something we choose out of a secure place in Jesus. I'm not letting others trample on me. I'm just as Jesus did. I'm choosing to lay myself down, give myself up, let my rights go a little bit, let my own sense of self-entitlement go a little bit for the sake of others. 
That's the heart of wisdom. And that's the narrow road of the cross. Our staff team this year are working through a book called Leading with a Limp. It's by a guy called Dan Allender. He's the president of a seminary in Seattle called Mars Hill Graduate School. He tells a story in this book of a time when the seminary went through a really hard season. They just lost a professor, one of their best professors, top professor, really popular, charismatic guy. He'd left, and the reasons for his resignation couldn't be discussed. There were just privacy issues, understandably, and the administration couldn't say a lot about that. But predictably enough, in this vacuum of information, rumors started to swirl. The students started to guess why he might have gone, and they started to blame, and they started to throw accusations around and get upset. They blamed the theology of the school. They blamed other faculty members they thought might have been muscling him out. They blamed all kinds of school politics. And the rumor mill started swirling. Students got upset. They got angry. And when the faculty did try to speak and tried to clarify and tried to put information out there, it just seemed to fuel the rage. It just fueled the, the, the anger that was there on the part of these students. And then Dan Allender says, at one point, the staff, the faculty, did a stupid thing. They just stopped talking. They just put their heads in the sand and hoped that the whole thing would blow over. Summer break was approaching, and they just hoped everyone would get focused on that. And all that happened is this just fueled the rage among the students, to the point that many students in that school started making plans to leave after summer and find other education. Dan Ellender went on holiday for a few weeks on his summer break, and he came back, and there was an invitation there from the student council for him and some other staff members to meet with them, talk these issues through. And they talked about it as a staff first, and some people on the staff thought this was a bad idea. Bad call, because you're going into an ambush situation. This is going to be the lion's den, and what's the point in just continuing to trudge through these issues when there's only so much you can say? You're just going to keep feeding it, and you're going to keep fueling it. But Dan Allender looked at the students and their, their, their anguish. He looked at the fact that many were planning to leave. He knew that this was basically make or break, and that if a decent portion of these students decided to take off, the school probably couldn't survive. So he made the decision to meet him and some other staff, to meet with the students. On the day they were scheduled to meet, they walked into the room, the meeting room, and they saw this table laid out. It had candles on it and freshly cut flowers, placemats laid out around the table. And the students had decided to serve the staff dinner, laid on this beautiful meal, and, this, and, and each of the students served the faculty members. And as they sat down to eat that night, the guy who was the president of the student council, a guy named Paul, he started to speak, and this is what he said. As students, we are here with a great deal of hurt and confusion. Some are angry. Some have made the decision to leave the school. Others are in the middle of making a decision about their future. But we've all realized that in our heartache, none of us have come to you to ask, how are you? Whether you have failed or not, we have failed you by not opening our hearts to you and asking what you have endured through these events. We want to ask you to tell your stories, sharing to the degree you wish. And as, as Dan and these other staff members heard these words, they, it, it just broke them. You know, they'd come with all the body armor on, ready for a big fight, ready for a battle, all their arguments loaded, and what they encountered was grace. What they encountered was nothing but love. Unconditional, undeserved love. 
What they encountered was wisdom, real wisdom. And it didn't mean that everything suddenly got better. Didn't mean that all the hurt was gone. Didn't mean the pain was gone. There were still difficult words that were spoken that night. There was still a long process to go. But those words and that act of of deep hospitality was so disarming, so utterly gracious, that hearts were just melted. And real feelings began to be shared, not just arguments. And real humanness began to be expressed. And wounds slowly were healed. And the the fractured relationships were slowly mended. And over time, many of the students who had planned to leave the school decided not to. They stuck it out. And the school survived. Friends, that's the road. That's the road of biblical wisdom. That's what it looks like. It's incredibly rare. But it's a beautiful thing. And so may we center our lives on this poor, wise man, Jesus who gave himself, entered into poverty for us, to rescue us and give us hope and give to us a pattern of what love and wisdom look like in this life. And may we each become, in our own way, small ways, in our own contexts, may we each become that poor wise man, willing to lower ourselves and humble ourselves for the sake of others, because the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. We pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom in sending Jesus. We thank you that your wisdom is demonstrated so openly, so brutally on the cross. Jesus, we ask, we ask humbly this morning that you would conform us to the pattern of your own wisdom. Make us humble. Break us open. Make us willing to give ourselves away for others, just as you gave yourself for us. Make us wise, we pray, in your name. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.